I came across a Reader's Digest online uh, entry on uh, 50 bad bosses that you would not want to work for. And a few of the entries I thought were pretty funny. So I'd like to share just a couple of them with you. The first one uh, that I thought was cool was uh, at least cute. My boss was notoriously cheap, Gail wrote. So when he handed me a birthday card, I was pleasantly surprised. Thank you, I said. You're welcome, he replied. And when you get through reading it, take it to Robin down the hall. It's her birthday today, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Terry wrote in, the front office asked us to figure out the square footage dedicated to each department in our clothing store. To save time, I suggested we count the ceiling tiles above each department. They're each two square feet. Counting the tiles would give us an accurate dimension of each department without having to work around all the displays, I explained. My boss hated the idea. Hello, she said sarcastically. We need the square footage of the floor, not the ceiling. (laughs) Tamara said, my boss was a real gentleman. Although it wasn't my job, he once made me mow the lawn around our office building. I was wearing a dress and high heels. And then finally, My boss gave the first employee of the month award to himself. (laughs) Now, we can laugh about, you know, humorous work situations. We've been all been in situations like that. But, you know, we spend a remarkable amount of time at work or in school or volunteering at the church or in other volunteer organizations. And if you find yourself in a situation Uh, where your boss is not just sort of doing things like this, but is actually mean-spirited or harsh or overly demanding. Or if you find yourself in a classroom with a teacher who seems to have it out for you or is legalistic or judgmental or you're in a church ministry situation and the person who is in charge of leading that ministry seems to care nothing for you or what's going on in your life, but only what you can contribute uh, to the uh, bottom line of where the ministry is going. If you find yourself in that situation, it can be pretty miserable. It can be pretty difficult to have to go to work every day or go to school every day or be engaged in a, in a church where that kind of leadership is involved, not just things that you can get a chuckle out of, but actually that make uh, your life and my life miserable and difficult. Well, this morning, God has something that He wants to say to us if we're in that situation. Instructions from His Word to guide us as to how to respond and how to behave when we find ourselves at work or at school or in church, trying to work or learn or minister under leadership that is harsh, demanding, unloving, and unlike Christ. So let's pray and ask that God would indeed speak to our hearts today. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, we're grateful for this day, uh, God, for giving us the ability to gather here together. Lord, the weather outside, uh, God, it could have easily kept us from being here. But Lord, we've come because you're worth us gathering together. Uh, Lord, we didn't get out in this weather because it was fun. Uh, We got out in this weather because we thought we were going to meet with you. And so, Lord, here we are, your people. We've made the sacrifice to be here. And Lord, we want you to meet with us. God, I pray specifically, I know that there are some here today who just this week had a terrible week at work or for the past few months have been having a a horrendous time with a teacher at school 
or Lord have been laboring in a ministry here perhaps at Calvary or, or maybe in other places in which it's just been uh, a very, very difficult situation. Lord, I'm asking right now at the beginning of the sermon that you would speak specifically to each one of those individuals. God, uh, that you would give them guidance and that through the sermon today they would hear your voice speaking to them so they can know that you've not ignored their situation, you've not forgotten about them, but you see them where they're at and you have a word for them. God, only you can do this because you know everything that's going on and it's all unfolding according to your plan. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you come and speak to each one of our hearts? In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the great things about Peter's situation when he lived uh, here on the earth was that he had the opportunity to be with Jesus. And of course, that's great because you get to see all this miraculous stuff. You get to hear all this amazing teaching. And really, I mean, who wouldn't want to have that experience? But I've got to think that even though pretty much everything Peter saw was jaw-dropping and amazing and noteworthy, I've got to think that he's human just like we are. There had to be a few things that he saw that above everything else really stood out that was so uh, etched in his brain that when he saw these, either it was so counterintuitive uh, or so miraculous or so beyond anything he would have expected or imagined that when this happened, that Peter just fixated on it and couldn't get it out of his mind. And years after Jesus was gone, Peter would come back to that scene over and over and over again, meditating on it, thinking about it because it was simply so stunning and so amazing. Well, my guess is if you ask Peter for the top two or three or four things that he got to see, one of them probably would have taken place in the garden on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Now, you may remember the scene or remember the story. <clears throat> Jesus and his disciples are there praying, and Judas shows up with a cohort, a large cohort of Roman soldiers there to arrest Jesus. Judas is betraying Jesus. He comes over and says, Rabbi. And he gives him a hug and gives him a kiss. And this is the sign that the soldiers know that Jesus is the one they're supposed to arrest. Well, Peter is there and his blood is boiling. I mean, here's Judas. Maybe he was one of Peter's personal friends. We don't know, but he certainly was part of the group of 12 that had followed Jesus around, that had been learning from Jesus, that had seen Jesus do miraculous things. Here's Judas betraying Jesus. And worse than that, here are these Roman soldiers there to arrest somebody who had come to bring God's peace to earth, who had come to heal people, who had come to provide food, who had come to provide guidance. Here is this God himself being arrested by Roman soldiers and Peter's blood is boiling and so he grabs his sword and he starts flailing wildly, swinging at the closest person to him. Now Peter's not very adept with the sword, so... He ends up knocking off a servant's ear. But still, you want to say kudos to you, Peter, for bravery. But Jesus doesn't give him kudos for bravery. Instead, he says to Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know those who live by the sword will die by the sword? And then he says, don't you think that if I asked my father that right now he wouldn't put 12 legions of angels at my disposal? But how would the plans of God be fulfilled if I were to do this? At this point, we realized that what seemed like bravery was actually the fight or flight mechanism at work in Peter. Because when fighting doesn't work, Peter takes to flight. And he and the other disciples 
seeing this large crowd of Roman soldiers, they run for it and they desert Jesus. But then we go to the trial and there Jesus is on trial. And the amazing thing is he had just said he could call down a co uh, 12 legions of angels to defend himself. And you think they would absolutely massacre all of the human armies on earth. Can you imagine 12 legions of angel warriors here to defend Jesus? Well, we go to the trial and here's another scene where Jesus is on trial. And we think to ourselves, ah, but every time Jesus has ever been in any sort of intellectual debate or discussion, he's always come out on the top side. He always seems to know exactly what to say. He's got all the wisdom in the world. Surely when he's going through these trumped up charges and people are making accusations against him, we're waiting for Jesus to just open his mouth, to just say that one statement, that brilliant thing which would completely exonerate him, would, would, would show what a, what a foolish trial this was, would get him off the hook. But he doesn't say anything. And then we go to the scene where he's been arrested and he's blindfolded and the guards are beating him and they're mocking him and they're saying, prophesy who hit you. And we think to ourselves, yeah, do it. You know who hit you, say it to him. Imagine how that would have stopped them right in their tracks for him to say aloud who they were. He knows everything about them. Yet Jesus says nothing. And then worst of all, as he's hanging on the cross in the worst suffering that any human has ever experienced, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, in every possible way, death itself. And there he is and people come by and say, if you're the Messiah, come down from there and we'll believe in you. Not realizing that he had the power to do that. <laughs> that at any moment he could have stepped down off of that cross. Yeah, that would have given him quite a shock. That would have proved, that would have ended the whole thing. And the reason why I think this sort of one scene, this idea that Jesus has this power, both in the garden and on trial and when he's being beaten and on the cross, at any point he can cause the suffering to stop. And he doesn't. The reason why I'm, I'm confident that this continued to haunt Peter from that point on, that this was one of those scenes that he could never get out of his brain, is that I wasn't even there and it haunts me. I keep thinking to myself how very differently I would have reacted. How much I would have liked at the trial to simply show them all uh, what, a, what a monkey trial this was. How much I would have liked to tell them who was, who was hitting me to come down from that cross, to call down the 12 legions of angels, to be able to make the suffering stop. But Jesus doesn't do that. And I'm sure that the more Peter thought about that, the more Peter thought in the midst of suffering, he had the means to make it end and chose not to do it. The more he had to realize that if Jesus is right in the garden not to call down the legions of angels, if he was right on trial not to defend himself, if he was right when people were beating him not to prophesy who it was, if he made the right choice not to come down from the cross, then that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. That changes how we react with, uh, interact with people at work and at school and at church. And so as Peter meditates on this incredible action where Jesus has the power to end suffering and does not, Peter, I think, formulates some principles for you and I today. 
when we find ourselves in difficult situations at work or at school or at church. And it's those principles we want to look at. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's page 981 in the Bibles that the church provides. There's one in your rack in front of you or underneath your seat. Page 981. While you're turning, let me remind you that we're in the section of 1 Peter where Peter's really concerned with mission, with God's mission to rescue the world. And remember, God shows us, God teaches us to obey so that he can use our obedience to help rescue others. And here in the section we're going to be looking at, we're going to hear Peter's instructions for how we are supposed to obey in the workplace, in the school, at church, and in environments like this so that God can use our obedience to accomplish his purposes and plans. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To begin, we need to understand who it is that Peter is talking to here. He's addressing slaves. But the problem with that word is it's impossible for those of us living in a 21st century context to hear that word slaves and not read it in light of slavery that took place in North America in modern times. However, the slavery that Peter has in mind is very different than the institution of slavery that took place in America. Scott Barchi, who's a, sort of a scholar in this area, wrote the article on Greco-Roman slavery in the Anchor Bible Dictionary. And he tells us the differences between slavery in the first century and what we might think of when we think of slavery. He says this, central features that distinguished first century slavery from that later practiced in the new world are the following. Racial factors played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were better educated than their owners and enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws prohibited public assembly of slaves, and perhaps above all, 
the majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by age 30. Slaves held high-ranking positions in the Roman government. They filled roles of being doctors, lawyers, accountants, teachers, secretaries, construction workers. In many cases, they held the kinds of positions that you and I hold when we go to work uh, today. And that's why when we think of slaves, they have much more in common with those of us who are at work or in school or volunteering than we might initially think. Now, don't get me wrong. A slave in the first century still was not free to kind of quit his job. He still could receive a physical beating in a way that we don't experience that today. So it's not exactly the same, but it's much closer to what we're experiencing when we're at work or at school or volunteering and we have somebody over us who may be harsh or judgmental or difficult to work for. Second, Peter's not only talking about a situation that's pretty similar to ours. He wants to make sure that we understand. Look, if you're suffering at work, or school, or church, because you're a difficult person, that's not what he's talking about. If you're having trouble because you're troublesome, you don't get to say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> Peter's saying, no, if you're having a difficult time with your boss or your teacher <clears throat> or the person over you <clears throat> because you're making everybody's life difficult by the choices you're making, that's a different situation. But if your coach is verbally abusive to you, if you're in a classroom where the teacher seems to be antagonistic towards you and perhaps picking on you because he or she knows that you're Christian, if you're in a workplace environment in which your boss is being incredibly over-demanding and wants you to serve at the altar of money just like he or she is, if you're in a situation at church where you're volunteering but you're being treated like you're some sort of cog in the system as opposed to a person that Jesus loves, then Peter has something important to say to you and I this morning. And the key to what Peter has to say to us, <clears throat> the key to the whole passage, is verse 19. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Because they are conscious of God. That's the key to this whole thing. This is Peter trying to work out what Jesus said in the garden when he chooses not to call down the 12 legions of angels and says, but how would the plans of God be fulfilled if I did that? Peter realizes Jesus is conscious of what God's trying to do. That the decisions Jesus is making when he's in the midst of suffering is not simply a factor of how he's feeling at that moment or the way to make the pain end. Jesus is making decisions with what God has planned in mind. And Peter says, that's the key for you and I at work, at school, at church to do what we're doing even when we have harsh people in authority over us in a way in which we are conscious of God. What that means is that if you're in a situation like I've been describing at work or at school or volunteering at church, there are four questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, why did God put me in this situation? 
Why did God put me here? Number two, what is God trying to accomplish in me through this? This is what it means to be conscious of God. What is God trying to accomplish in me through putting me in this situation? Number three, what is God wanting to do for others through this? What's God wanting to do for others through this situation? And then four, has God given me any indication that I'm not supposed to be in this situation besides the fact that I don't like it? Can we get the fact that this is not comfortable? Nobody's at all pretending this is a good situation or that it's a happy situation or that there's no suffering involved. But the question is, has God given me any other indication that I'm not supposed to be in this situation besides the fact that I'm miserable? What this means, parents, is that if your fifth grader has been assigned that teacher that you were dreading him getting, that teacher who seems to be uh, too harsh or legalistic or not very understanding, what this means is, is probably instead of going into the school and trying to chop off as many ears as possible or trying to fight with the teacher or the administration or fleeing and pulling your child out of that school or running to it, you ought to ask yourself these questions to say, is there some way God has assigned my child to that teacher so that his plans can be worked out in my child's life and in the teacher's life and in the classroom's life? Until you can answer that question, you're not yet conscious of God and what he might be doing. After all, if your child has a miserable experience in the classroom, but that teacher ends up coming to faith, wouldn't it be worth it? What this means is if you find yourself in a work situation where you're going to be assigned to a new project, or you're going to get a new boss, and that new boss is notorious for being antagonistic towards Christians, and anybody who dares say that they go to church or ask for time off on Sunday mornings or, or bring their Bible to work or whatever, anybody like that, that boss just has uh, the evil eye for and, and won't help you when it comes to promotions or raises and won't fight for you for any of those kinds of things. Before you go in and fight with the person over that person and say, look, I don't want her to be my boss. Or before you flee and say, how do I get a new job? How do I find a new situation? You and I need to sit down and ask these questions and say, what is it that God is trying to accomplish by giving her to me as a boss? I mean, after all, wouldn't it be better to submit to what God is doing? How would this woman ever become a Christian if every Christian who ever works for her flees as fast as they can? What this means is if you're in a volunteer opportunity here at the church. And perhaps you've been there and you've been, you've been serving in that area for a long time and you've seen lots of fruit and it's been really powerful and really great, but uh, a new pastor's been assigned to that area or a new lay leader's been assigned to that area and they take away all the things in the ministry that you really like doing and they leave you with the things that drain all of your energy. Our initial human reaction is to fight, is to say, you're gonna destroy this ministry if you do it that way and I'm not gonna let you do it. Or it's to flee, it's to run and say, okay, fine, do whatever you want. I'm going to go somewhere else and volunteer. I'm going to be part of something else. Wouldn't it be better instead to submit and to say, what's God trying to do by putting me in this situation? 
How might I be a blessing to this new ministry leader or to this ministry? What's God trying to accomplish in and through this situation? That's what it means to be conscious of God at work, at school, at church. Now listen, I know what your objection is. It's the same objection I have when I hear this. And that is, but what if my fifth grader ends up hating school because of this teacher? Or what if this boss who's antagonistic towards Christians blocks all of the raises or the promotions or when it's time for layoffs is going to nominate me to be laid off first? Or what if this ministry that I have been a part of for so long, what if this thing utterly crashes and burns or what if I come week after week to participate and I just feel a a lack of fulfillment? Those are the concerns I have when I hear this. But that's why Peter says there's another aspect to what it means to be conscious of God without which this whole thing falls apart. And that's in verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How can you and I bear to allow our fifth grader to go into a classroom in which we think it's going to destroy their love of learning? How will you and I put up with a boss who we think is not going to fight for us when layoffs are coming or when we need a promotion or a raise? How, are you, how can you and I endure a situation at church where we're volunteering in a way that seems to drain our energy or not be what it used to be? Peter says, you and I can only do that when we realize that we are, should entrust ourselves to God the Father who judges justly. The reason Jesus doesn't call down 12 legions of angels in the garden, the reason Jesus on trial doesn't defend himself, the reason why Jesus is being beaten and battered, he doesn't fight back, the reason why when Jesus is on the cross and could pull himself off, the reason he doesn't do it is because he trusts that God the Father is going to take care of him, that God the Father is going to resurrect him from the dead. That after the garden and after the trial and after the cross, when he's laying there in the tomb, Jesus is absolutely certain that the Father will do the right thing. Which means he will resurrect him from the dead. And if God the Father resurrects Jesus from the dead, when he's bearing the guilt of all the sins of the whole world, Would he not be able to resurrect your fifth grader's love of school, even though that teacher killed it? Would God not be able to resurrect your career, even though that boss killed it? And would God not be able to resurrect the ministry that you're involved in, even if this ministry leader kills it? Peter's point is, look, Put your trust in God at the end of the day. Your fifth grader's love of school is not dependent on the teacher. It's dependent on God. Your experience at work and whether you get laid off or don't get laid off or how much you pay or whether you get promoted is not dependent on whether your boss likes you or not. It's dependent on God. And whether your ministry that you're involved in at church bears fruit and is fulfilling is not dependent on the person in charge. It's dependent on God. Peter says to be conscious of God 
is to ultimately entrust how this is going to go to a God who always, always, always does the right thing and always, always, always takes care of those who submit and obey. But notice Peter says, he entrusted himself. You see, we sometimes think, well, if God would just show me, if he would show me what his plans were, yes, I could trust him. No, 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 sometimes we have to, we don't know how that fifth grade teacher thing's gonna work out. We don't know how this new boss thing is gonna work out. Yes, if we knew that five years from now our new boss was going to come to faith and everything would be great, well, yes, we could endure it. Or if, yes, we knew that a church, this ministry that is changing directions was ultimately going to be just this wonderful thing that we'd really love, of course we would endure it. But Peter says, that's not what we do. We trust not in the fact that we know the plan. We trust him who always does the right thing. And a lot of time that means I don't have any idea how this fifth grade thing's gonna turn out. I don't have any idea how this new boss thing's gonna work. I don't have any idea how this ministry direction change is gonna work out. But I'm trusting that God is going to take care of it, that he will accomplish his plans. Now you say, but does that mean we never quit a job? Does that mean we never change ministries? We never switch churches? We never, <clears throat> we never fight for a different teacher for our kids? We never do any of those things? I love the way Peter ends this section. Verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The last image that Peter gives us of Jesus is that of the good shepherd. And what a good shepherd does is he guides us. There is a time to flee persecution, but there's also a time to stay. There is a time to fight against abuse, but there's also a time to silently submit to it. There is a time to defend yourself and there is a time to simply not defend yourself. How are you gonna know the difference? Peter says, the good shepherd will guide you. He'll be the one to tell you. Yes, there are times to quit your job, but there are times to stay. Yes, there are times to change schools and schooling situation, but there are also times to stay. And the only way to know is God guiding us because at the end, to be conscious of God, we need God to direct us. And God says, look, you just don't see the bigger picture. Trust me, I will lead you beside still waters. I will take you to where the grass is green. And I know it looks like we're going through some brown grass to get there, but trust me, we'll end up there. And I love the fact that when Peter calls him the good shepherd, he reminds us that if Jesus does ask us to stay in that job with that abusive boss or with that teacher that seems to be a train wreck for our child or in this ministry situation with this new direction and this new leader, that the person who's going to be right there with us is Jesus. That he knows exactly what it's like to be in a situation where you have the power to fight, you have the inclination to run, but choose in Ted to submit. And Jesus will be right there with you and I saying, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like. The hardest thing in the world is to submit. 
See, when we first see Peter in the garden, and we look at him pulling out his sword against this advancing army of Roman soldiers, we think, now there's bravery. <laughs> when he gets his wits about him and realizes, I think I'm going to run that direction, we think, there's wisdom. <laughs> but in reality, the bravest thing I've ever seen is Jesus staying there and submitting when he has the power to fix it. The wisest thing Jesus ever did was to stay there and submit himself to the one who judges justly. Our human inclination is to see it's brave to fight, it's wise to flee, but when we come in contact with Jesus, we realize that neither is true. The bravest act you and I will ever be asked to do is to submit willingly to suffering when we could fight or flee instead.